Hello and welcome to the Lake Superior Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Brooks Johnson, and with me this week is Duluth author Sarah Seidelman. Hello and welcome. Hello, Brooks. I'm excited to be here. Each episode, we bring you a reading from a local author and a talk about the craft. Local, if you aren't yourself, means northeastern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. And what do you have to read for us today? Well, I was thinking it might be fun to talk about the journey from self-publishing to more traditional publishing, because when I started writing back in 2010, um, before that I was practicing medicine, I hadn't written in years, so I was like, well, where do you begin? And I just started to get this longing to write again, and, um, and so... I my first book I had a hankering to write a book in 2010 and um, I brought kind of a rough manuscript to a, an editor who I respected a lot not somebody from in town somebody who had you know ties to the publishing uh, industry and she told me like you're not ready to write a book you'll take you a couple years you need to get more experience in this particular area you want to write about. Hmm. And I was so disappointed and distraught. I mean, I took to my sick bed, Brooks, for days. No, nay, months. (laughs) Literally just feeling the painful emotions of just, I felt like such a rejection. But then one day I started getting mad. Like, God dang it. Nobody can tell you that you can't, that you're not ready to write a book. I mean, they they can, but I'm not going to let this stop me. So I finally got in touch with somebody who was a very, a more like a gentle soul who I knew my, I felt very safe with. And I said, listen, I've got this, I've got a new idea for a book. And it wasn't the book that I had proposed this other person, but it was a book about animal spirits, which I knew not a lot about because I was just starting to dabble in this topic. Again, mm-hmm. coming out of medicine, I, I started dabbling in this topic and it seemed kind of odd, but I was like really fascinated by it. And she said, yeah, I'll help you do that. Because I, I think as writers, we need we need somebody to help us edit, or especially those of us who are, if you're like me, I have a lot of ideas, but I sort of need help corralling and, and parsing those ideas into chunks so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I worked with her, and that's where I um, published. So my first book was What the Walrus Knows, um, An Eccentrics Field Guide to Working with Beastie Energies, which was all about animal spirits. Nice. And... I basically ended up deciding just to publish it myself. I never sought to publish it as a, you know, that was sort of the heyday of, um, I would say, self-publishing. And there was a lot of potential and promise and all that. And I was very excited. And and I really didn't want to wait for the two to three to five year process it could take to go through traditional publishing. And so I did that. And I funded the editing myself. And I also funded the design. The book is highly illustrated. And so Mm -hmm. that part of it as well. And I think, all told, I think I have like $4,000 maybe into editing, design, and then we uploaded it basically to Lightning Source, which Lightning Source, back in the day, they would let you just go on in there like a cowgirl and <laughs> load her up. And I mean, it was hard. I had to taste like a lot of coffee and like if I had still had some Adderall around from my original ADH diagnosis, I would have taken it. But by then I had flushed it all down the toilet, realizing it wasn't helping me. Um, but I did get it uploaded and that really began my 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 uh my path as a writer and people liked the book and so then I wrote a second book um which only happened because when I called my editor to say wow thank you so much the people love the book it's going so great you know it wasn't like a New York Times bestseller obviously but it was like it was really well received and she said well when are you what are you going to write for your second book and I was like you think I'm going to write a second book? And she's like, well, of course. I mean, you have so many ideas. Why wouldn't you? And I was like, oh, my gosh. That idea excited me so much, like, that she thought I had a second book to write. I was super pumped. 
And so, like, I always just say, if you're a writer, encourage other writers, because Lord knows we are so down on ourselves, right? right? I'm sure you can... It's never good enough. If I could go back and do it again, it would be better every time. Such a killer. Absolutely. So about that time, I was had just received a diagnosis of ADHD as an adult, and I was starting to realize like the gifts of that, and starting to kind of turn that or, that grief of, oh my God, no wonder so many people have thought I'm a freak for so long into, oh my gosh, like I'm a freak in the best kind of way, like really <laughs> celebrating that uniqueness. And so I basically wrote a book that was a love letter to anybody who's been given a diagnosis in the DSM four you know, bipolar, depression, anxiety, um, even Asperger's. Um, so that book um, is called Born to Freak, A Salty Primer for Irrepressible Humans. And that book, I also self-published. I, I thought about maybe pursuing a traditional publishing thing, but I knew that it was a long road. And I was like, I really wanted to get that book out. And I knew now that I had a pipeline. I could, I knew how to do this. I knew how to like drink seven gallons of coffee as I uplit. And, you know, and it took me about a year to work with my editor again to get this book done and illustrated. And I uploaded it. And again, it was like well-received. And... At the end of writing those two books and self-publishing, and maybe I should I read, maybe I'll read a brief section from Born to Freak, sure. a salty primer for irrepressible humans. Yeah. So this is a chapter on failure. Um, there's sort of an alphabetical grouping of chapters, but so this is F is for fail. Some days are like surfing. Maybe this is good for all you writers who are listening. Some days are like surfing perfect wave after perfect wave. We enjoy every single minute. Some days can be so absolutely bafflingly delightful that we begin to wonder what the heck is going on. Other days simply suck. (laughs) They feel like a fail. It can be hard to be a freak. And freak, as I define it in the book, is is a person who's a bit unusual and um, is born to sort of express their, through expressing their eccentricities, is here to restore balance to the world. Um, It can be hard to be a freak as we're so tuned into the frequencies of our days. The highs are exceedingly high and the lows can feel devastatingly low. And we wonder what's causing the ruckus. Is it the planetary energy? Did I miscalculate my numerology? Was it that spiritual donut I ate? And then I define spiritual donuts as sprouted green toast slathered with coconut oil and orange blossom honey. Thanks. I've learned that as fucking amazing and incredible as some days are, there are also days that feel like a fail. And at such times, I advise becoming aware as soon as possible of the darkness descending and immediately activating any kind of feel good you can. Listen to music you love, go out in nature, snuggle a pug, or put yourself to bed. Some days I do all of that and I still feel the fail, at least until I fall onto, into unconsciousness on my Tempur-Pedic mattress. There's a concept I've come to understand about this fail process that helps me to relax more about it. When we feel the looming sense of doom, fail, or uh uh-oh, or when things that were going great all of a sudden go south, it's simply our own personal cosmic energy rubber band being pulled back. If we can hang in there as peacefully as possible without thrashing, we can anticipate feel-goods ahead as the rubber band cycle turns. Everything changes, and if we hang on, we may soon be sent slingshot-style straight into cosmic delight again. And I go on from there. So that was sort of like a, um, it was beautifully reviewed by um, uh, a writer in, at the, for the Budgeteer who said it was a Saturday Night Live sort of self-help book, oh, yeah. which was like a great compliment. Yes. So uh, that was Maureen Mahoney who did that. 
mm-hmm. who's another fantastic Duluth writer. Um, after finishing those two books, I really had the desire that summer to really study the craft and really get better at it. And so I checked out like a million books from the library. I read everything I could get my hands on on nonfiction because now I had this desire to write a memoir or to write a story. And I had been a real fan of um, Liz Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love. It really ignited a desire in me to travel and adventure and things like that. And so I had gone on quite a few adventures on my sabbatical from medicine, and I thought that they would maybe make a good story. And so I did a lot of reading and sort of like went to a mini graduate school that I put myself through. Um, And then with that in mind, all these new ideas in mind, um, one of my favorite books from that time that I read was by Lee Gutkind, and the book is called You Can't Make This Stuff Up is all about nonfiction writing. It's so good and so many tricks and tools. So then I started working on my third book, which is Swimming with Elephants, which is more of a memoir style book um, and with the aim of publishing it traditionally. So I worked and worked on it and worked on it some more. And then I eventually um, connected with a woman named Betsy Rappaport, who is an editor who, again, has connections to the traditional publication, publishing houses. She's worked in that that arena, but now she does more uh, helping, like she wrote, helped Candace Bergen write her most recent memoir. So, so she kind of helps people to write their books, and she also helps people to kind of birth. I hate that word, birth, b- birthing a book. It, it just right. brings to mind, I don't know, meconium or something. <laughs> just weird things. Anyway, she helps people do that, and um, so she helped me to get it into shape, which, as all of you know, is like a growing process. And then she said, I think it's ready to try to write a proposal and shop it around. And so we worked on a proposal. Um, She submitted it through Query. um, What is the website? Query.net, which is the the agency query. You know, anybody can do this. You go on there and there are millions of all the agents are there and all their rules about how they like to receive their work is there. And you just submit your proposal. And we waited, and I think we had like, I don't know, 12, 15, a lot of rejections. But then one agent stepped forward, and she said she was interested. And I spoke with her, and I just went with her. And it, it's been really great. That was and a long rubber band snapping back. That, yeah, yeah, that was a good, that was an exciting moment. And it wasn't exactly what I thought. The first thing she did was she's like, this proposal, it needs to be completely redone, which was... Mm-hmm. As anybody who's a writer and who's ever written a book proposal, it's like, that is not the fun part. That's like pouring concrete or something. You know, it's like, what? I've got a in a proposal, you're basically proving to a book buyer why your book, where it's going to be positioned in the bookshelf in the store, and also why your book is so much better than all the classics that are closely related to your book. You know, like why your book is going to be so much better than, you know, whatever, whoever the masterpiece it is, you know. And so... Um, it's tricky business writing those, but so I worked on that and um, got the proposal done and then she shopped it around and she sold it and not only did she sell that, but then she also, it was very interesting. She, when I first told her, uh, my agent, well, I've got these two self-published books and they've done pretty well. I mean, they're not like selling thousands and thousands of copies, but maybe a thousand or maybe 2,000 copies. And she was like, She's like, Sarah, don't talk about that. And she has this marvelous, like, New York accent. She's like, I don't want you to breathe a word of that. Like, nobody wants to know that. Nobody needs to know that. Like, you know, when they're selling books, 
it was I mean, what I heard, my impression was that it's a very bad thing. Like, it's almost like dirty words. You do not want to know. But what happened was, and I was like, well, that's fine. So we pulled all that information off their proposal because that was all there. She has this book. Here's how many copies it sold. Here's the reviews. But she's like, no, no, we're moving all that. And I was like, really? But then what she did do is she turned around and she proposed. I don't exactly know how it happened, but um, she probably knows the details. But anyway, she proposed... Um, that I take the book, What the Walrus Knows. She pitched that to another uh, publishing house, and then they said, we would like this book, but expanded it in more, kind of bring it into the modern era. And, mm. you know, and then she sold a proposal based on that. So she told, sold two books in one year, which is, what, from my understanding, quite unusual. Uh, most publishing houses don't want two different books to come out real close to each other because um, there's so much stuff. So... That book um, is called The Book of Beasties, and that was published by Sounds True last year. Um, Your A to Z Guide to the Illuminating Wisdom of Spirit Animals. And so basically it's sort of an instruction manual in the beginning of how to work with spirit animals and the animals that cross your path. Like how do you receive a message from, say, the badger that blocked you from entering your car this morning, you know, or whatever it was. Um, Anyway, so maybe I'll read just briefly... uh, a little bit from so there's like over I think there's over 145 beasties in here one of them is of course elephant who I am very fond of because my spirit one of my you know most dear spirit animals is an elephant whose name is Alice so I'll just read a little from part of the profile I won't read the whole thing but um so if elephant has entered your life you'll be learning a lot about what it means to truly be part of the family That's the family, capital F, the Earth family. Elephants possess a tremendous amount of patience, tenderness, and compassion, and when it comes to their relations, all of their relations. Are you up for the challenge of living in harmony with all the beings who you come into contact with? The matriarch, or lead female, is typically the eldest of an elephant herd, and she's the one that all the other elephants orient themselves around. She's the hub chosen by her clan because she's proven to be trustworthy over a long period of time. If you surround yourself with great teachers and dedicate yourself to learning from them, you have the potential to gain some of the wisdom they possess. Honor the luminaries who guide you. And if you're an elder, the time has come to share your wisdom and experience with your tribe. Don't hold back. The whole family will benefit. So, um... Maybe just to say a few words about, I mean, it's just very interesting when you're self-publishing versus when you're working with a publishing house. Um, For example, with Swimming with Elephants, this memoir, um, when I worked with the book, the publishing house's editor, there were sections of the book that she wanted to remove that we felt, or I felt, were very critical to the story. There's sort of a, a dark element in the book where I go, I travel to India and I meet a a guru and um, some kind of unsavory information is kind of dug up in this experience and um, or revealed to me. And she was like, I think we should just, we don't need any of that in the book and we'll just remove it. And I'm like, but we don't really have a story. I mean, that's kind of the counterpoint to the whole end of the book where I turn away from worrying about all that. And anyway, And then I remember calling my agent and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, like, they want me to remove this. And they wanted me to remove seven fucks. Or, like, or I think there were 13 fucks, which they removed every single one. Oh, no. 
Yeah. Oh, like, that's and I was like, what is this? Like the Protest, like the, the puritanical publishing house? Like, I was really surprised. And they were like, well, we just don't think excessive, like gratuitous swearing is okay. And like in our rules, we don't do that. And our, the rules we use for editing. And I'm like, well, this book is, I'm comparing it to people like, like Cheryl Strayed. I mean, she uses F-bombs all the time. Not gratuitously, but well-placed, right. you know? Right. Um, not to say that I'm, you know, of the caliber of, you know, Cheryl Strayed, but I was like, are you reading current modern literature and memoirs? Like, this is normal. And my agent, that's the wonderful thing about having a great agent is they will go bat to bat for you. And so I called her and I'm like, I was just a wreck. I'm like, they want to remove this story and they want to take all the fucks out of it. What are we going to do? And she's like, do you need these things in there? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, well, keep them in. And I'm like, really? Okay, awesome. Yeah. I was like, yes. Um, but it it's sort of... I'm a real creative person, like, or I have a very smooth, like, a vision about how the cover should look and how the insides of the books look. And yeah. so for me, it was a lot of fun to work on my own self-published books, which are very highly, mm, I would say, kind of visually oriented. Stylized. Stylized, yeah. yeah. For example, in the book Born to Freak, um, I use a lot of bolding and a lot of exclamation points and a lot of different kinds of text to just draw the eye in different directions. And um, I remember getting some feedback from somebody like, well, I would just, you know, like, you don't want to be thought like you're a serial killer, you know, with all those exclamation points. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, wow, that really upset me because I'm like, I'm not a serial killer. I'm just really enthusiastic. Yeah. And what I realized is like, I just kept all that in there and I kept all the bolds and all the all caps and people who for this book resonates I mean I still will get emails from people that are I don't know who found this book somehow which is not easy to do in a world where there are billion books who are like I read this book and I'm like literally like floating on the ceiling I am so happy I feel like somebody understands me and I get it and I love you know they'll give feedback on the way the words popped off the page and things so I think as creatives, we have to like honor ourselves. Um, but it's tricky because there's this, you know, if you go traditional publishing, it's all about, well, what will sell? And nobody really knows. It's like the stock market. Nobody knows what's going to be solid gold. And if they did, they would have never, re you know, rejected J.K. Rowling's, you know, Harry Potter book with, I mean, you've seen, probably read some of her rejection letters, which oh. are hilarious, you know, like, <laughs> Children will not be interested in reading a book about owls and magic. You know, thank you so much. Regards, you know, whatever. It's like people had no idea. Yep. But the person that saw it was like, yeah. And in fact, I just had my a recent book I've been working on for two years. I just sent it last week and my agent sent it to her. It's a YA fiction, a young adult fiction. And they basically turned it down. They're like, you know, you're welcome to seek representation elsewhere. But it's not for us because mm -hmm. they don't think it's marketable. Um, and they don't think the voice is, you know, they had, they had their specific reasons. Um, right. um, and criticism is just one of those things you have to kind of learn how to, how to navigate that. And I always tell people like, let yourself first feel your feelings, like throw yourself on the bed, sob, cry, take, that could take months. In my case, the first one <laughs> did take months, yeah. but you get faster and faster at recovering from it. Cause it's okay. like, don't take it personally. But like the second thing is like if this is a kind universe, why are you getting this feedback right now? Why might this be happening? I always say something better is coming. You know, mm -hmm. either it's to help you improve it. Sometimes it, rep you know, sometimes the critic, the critique is, um, is you know, strikes you true. Like 
I know I've had times people like, you know, you just need to remove this paragraph. And I'm like, oh my God, like the story is so much clearer without that. But you know, you can't see that because you've read it 4,000 times. Um, But if, so if criticism helps you to go back and improve the piece or the book, then by all means go with it. But if it just makes you feel terrible, then it's probably trolly and like you should ignore it. You know? Um, so yeah. So it's a little more than just getting thick skin about it. It's a whole process of dealing with the criticism, using it, yes, or recognizing what it is. You know, yes, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it helps you get clear on why you're doing something, and do you still want to do it, even if nobody wants it, even if it's not marketable? Are you still going to go for it? Like, yeah. are you going to get it out there somehow? Um, another beautiful thing I heard a couple weeks ago was like, when you make art, you know, make it a gift for somebody, because if you do that, then you won't ever have wasted any time because you're just, you know, it's just an offering and it's okay if if Barnes & Noble doesn't stock it, you know. Our ego wants it to be stocked at Barnes & Noble. Right. But our soul really doesn't care. Hmm. I don't think. That's profound. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm getting started on a book myself or I guess a book proposal. I didn't even know. But uh, I, I just, a collection of stories and I'm not sure... Yeah, how I would feel once, you know, the 15th rejection comes in, as it will, um, and until the 16th, that's a long rubber band, but uh, I haven't been on before, because as a journalist, I publish every day with no trouble, <laughs> so it's sort of yeah. the opposite of that spectrum. It's it's a very different road to go down. Um, how, how do you know when you're ready, I guess? How do you get out there and say, I'm either going to submit this or I'm going to self-publish? When, when, did, when did that hit you? Yeah, I think, well, like with the first book, I just had this urgency, like I desperately need this book to go out. I'm just so clamoring to share it. I don't want to wait. I have no interest in traditional publishing whatsoever. I just didn't really care. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's why I did that. When do you know it's ready to like ship it or send it off? I think it's when you're kind of to the point where you've just done every due diligence you can possibly imagine and you just can't live with yourself one more day like hanging it's just time for it to go to someone else either another reader or to submit it and get some feedback um it'll never be perfect as you said in the beginning like as artists we're always going to be like but i know like when i'm asked to read my books publicly it's it's like torture because you read it especially books from like five ten years ago because i'm like oh my god it's like, oh, I would have cut that out, you know, but like, I want to edit the whole thing as I'm reading it. Um, so. Wild, yeah. And tell me about your process, too. So four, possibly five books within a decade now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's um, mm-hmm. that's prolific, I think, by most standards. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like Nora Roberts standards, but, you know, by most yeah. standards. Uh, how, how do you do it? Uh, wh- when do you make time and what's your routine? Yeah. Well, I tend to just do whatever's working for me at the time. And that seems to change for me. Like... And sometimes I have to move around. Like sometimes I can work on my third floor in my closet at my little desk. Sometimes that feels really claustrophobic. And then I'll go put on my headphones, like my noise-canceling headphones, and I'll go to like the noisiest Starbucks or the noisiest Amity coffee time and sit there. And sometimes that hive, that vibe of all the people helps me to get things done um, or to work. Lots of different things. The recurring theme is early morning, so like get up at five every day and work for like those are my best hours between about five and about nine um and I think about four to five hours is about all I can manage before it really starts to go south unless it's at the end and you're doing more organizational stuff then I can maybe crank longer there's a great book um called how artists work uh which is by mm, anyway 
it's a wonderful book and it just yeah. talks about all the different ways people get stuff done yeah that's kind of my main thing I, I did agree to um, with the book of beasties when I went under contract for that book they asked me well when do you think you can deliver this and I was like oh like I don't know, February, you know, and it was like October. And they're like, okay, February 1 or whatever it was. And I was like, cool. And then I started working on it and it suddenly like dawned on me like, oh my gosh, like I shouldn't have said that because it's 100,000 words that I had to deliver. And basically what ended up happening is I had to do, I had to get up every day at five o'clock, seven days a week and work four hours a day every single day. I think, I mean, I skipped a few but it was a grind and it was it was good i loved what i was working on so it was like the work was wonderful but i would say there were days where i ended up working longer and i mean my not my health fell apart but i mean i stopped working out i stopped doing it like everything kind of got out of balance yeah. for a while for a few months but it was duluth it was like 50 below so it was fine you right, know yeah. that's the beauty of i think it's a wonderful town to live in when you're a writer, because frankly, there's nothing to do all winter long anyway. So, right, so you can write and dream about sunshine, and you know, go live live in those stories. So totally, or in those feelings. Yeah, that's an interesting part. I mean, maybe it's a bit self-imposed in this case with the seven days a week schedule, but is you know part of art is suffering, and I guess you know, and so so maybe you have to sort of give a bit of yourself and leave some of yourself with it. Was that a, your experience with some of these? Maybe especially your memoir. Um. I don't even, you know, I actually it was really, well, There, it is difficult. I think it's difficult when you realize, um, it's, sometimes it's just really hard to put it, how are you going to put it together, or how are you going to organize it, how are you going to tell this? But I think, I don't know that it's suffering. I think for me, the gift of writing a memoir in particular is that you begin to understand your life in this much greater way, and then you begin to see yourself as the hero in your story in a strange way. And it actually writing it made me more excited about my future and, and my past and how it all fit together. And it was very moving at times. And I've read other people talking about this too, like while they're right, there's a woman who right now who I know who's working on a a memoir about living with a somebody who's narcissistic but anyway she's super excited and she said i'm basically crying all day but it's the greatest feeling because she's reliving these memories and realizing what she wants to tell people who need to hear the, her message of hope and and recovery and all that so i think for me it was just a really um it was really fun and like writing memoir like Anne Lamott who I'm a huge fan of she has a section in her book Bird by Bird which is a wonderful book on writing she talks about I think it's I don't know which chapter it is but it's called Calling Around and this is where you pick up the phone and you're like God remember Bernie when we were back in India and we saw that guy and then you know whatever and you're trying to remember like what exactly happened and what was the dialogue because you're putting this together and you end up in these amazing conversations with people that you haven't otherwise wouldn't have the excuse to call them um, so I ended up having a lot of really cool conversations and Skype meetings with families that I met and all these weird travels. And I mean, we were all crying, not about the book so much, but about our experience that we shared together. Nice. Um, to Swimming with Elephants, when I went to visit um, one of the people that was in the book or was going to be in the book and the, and the editors cut those, those sections. Damn it. <laughs> anyway, when I was reading it to her, um, she was moved to tears like we both were. And it was like remembering a special time in her life too and what her story meant to me. So yeah. I think it doesn't have to be suffering. It can be like moving, like emotional. Maybe yeah. that's a better way, but emotional. that's why we're here is to feel the feelings of like joy and grief and everything in between because... Mm -hmm. 
that's our, and that's the, I mean, as a writer, that's what we do for people is invite them to step into those feelings that belong to them, of course, and their stories, but. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, good art is seeing the creator sees themselves in in the work that they create. Great art is others can see themselves in the work that is created. So totally try to work more on that. It's just very the big stuff hidden in the small stuff, right? So. Yeah, and you think, well, is anybody going to relate to this? I'm probably the only decoupage-obsessed northern <laughs> Minnesota crazy woman who's, like, got too many kids and working all these jobs or whatever. And But it's like, no, a lot of people see themselves, and they don't have those specific circumstances. They have their own, but, yeah. And I was going to say for you, because you've been doing the work every day, hammering out, like being forced to produce because it's your job. Um, There's a beauty to that because you've been like crafting, like what makes a good story? How do I put this in? And how do I do it in only 500 words or 300 words? And that's like, man, that's the best because you've got skill. And I sort of... Well, I mean, you're always working on your skills, but I'm still figuring that out. Like, how do I do this? Yeah. Oh, it's a constant. Yeah. No, I'll I'll never be good enough. You know, I I, I mean, that's what makes someone want to be better is thinking that they're not good enough, which is kind of a tricky balance with the ego of writing. But uh, the want to improve is sort of the... You makes you better. So yeah. Yeah. And don't hold back because like if I had said to myself, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know enough about animal spirits to talk about it, I mean there would have been lots of people that would have never learned these things and then we would have never like we took what the walrus knows and we made it into an app. And I have like there's lots of teenagers that use the app, which totally rocks my world, and I'll get emails from them occasionally like my gosh, you know, this zebra is like helping me so much. You have no idea. And that's all because I was like, well, let's just publish this thing. Let's, I don't know. It makes a lot of sense to me. It's helping me. Like it yeah. makes sense to me. Let's just see where it goes. Yeah. But like, don't hold back. Cause these are gifts that they're not, they don't really belong to you. They belong to the people. I think that's, that's what I want to say to writers and artists. Like none of this, none of this stuff belongs to any of us really. Definitely. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had any advice for people who want it. I think that's it, though. You know, that seems to be, that hits it. Yeah, it's a gift you're offering to other people, and that will help you stay out of your own way if you keep thinking of it as a loving gift. Like, why does a story need to be told? Who needs to hear it? Um, Because, or in my case, like, who needs these animal spirits? Who needs to be uplifted? Like, I can think of a million people, and so... And then I also think of the animals and how they need to be connected to humans so humans care for them. And so, like, do it for do it for whatever breaks your heart. Do it for that. Like, offer it as a gift to repair that thing that's wrong in the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I've got one last question for you. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Um... I am reading, well, I'm going to say the book that's on my bedside table that I never remove because when I am feeling down and the world is crashing around me, I pick up a book. It's called The Smell of Rain on Dust by Martin Prechtel. And he is an amazing writer. He just writes poetically, and he's a Guatemalan shaman slash storyteller, but he's amazing. And he was at the men's conference in Minnesota. You can find him on YouTube. He gave these most amazing talks that are all available on YouTube. He's an amazing entertainer, uh, writer. So he's the guy who I go to. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your works, and uh, thanks for joining me today. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Of course, yes. I'll do a quick outro now. 
And thank you for listening to the Lake Superior Writers Podcast, the audio arm of a literary nonprofit that seeks to boost the literary arts in northeastern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. To find out more and check out upcoming events, visit our Facebook page and our website, lakesuperiorwriters.org. Until next time, keep reading, keep writing.